Father in heaven, we thank you very much that you are so merciful and that you are gracious. And we thank you for opportunities to pause and reflect on the good gifts that you have given to us. So many that we just take for granted or chalk up to daily living. And yet, Lord, things happen. Things happen in this world. Things happen in our lives. And, and so we are grateful that you are with us always and that you are watching over us. You never sleep. And whether it be us now or Daniel centuries ago um, or those around us that you give us opportunity to reach out to, we ask, Lord, that you would be, uh, help us behold, to pay attention, to be ever mindful of your watch care over us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel, and, and maybe some of you thought we'd be in Daniel 7 today, since we were in 6 last week. Um, that would be the logical place. <laughs> but there was a couple of things as I was preparing for this week based on our discussion from last week, and specifically a couple of things that uh, Delisa mentioned and then um, just some of the other discussion. I wanted to go back and, and just kind of wrap up that a little bit. One of the things that was mentioned, we talked about pride. I mean, that was, we're looking at just how pride has been such a prevalent <coughs> theme through the Old Testament. And specifically here in Daniel, pride has been the, the, the fulfillment of the verse that says pride cometh before the fall. We just see that pride and then the fall repeatedly. And in fact, um, we were just, we got together with our family, with Teresa's family on Thanksgiving Day. And then again yesterday to celebrate Christmas because uh, family can't be here all on Christmas. And so it was, day in between, almost back-to-back Thanksgiving, Christmas, right? And one of our family discussions, we just got, got talking about, you know, as we were visiting about some of the other things that God's doing in our lives, some of the scriptures about pride came up. And, and my brother-in-law, a wonderful scholar of the scriptures, says, I'm convinced that pride is the greatest of all sins. It leads everything else kind of kind of comes from pride. And we see that even in, you know, Satan, what was his, it all began with pride, thinking he wants to get all the glory and praise that's rightly due the Most High God. And he wanted to sit on the throne and not just hover over it. And, and then he goes to Adam and Eve, and what does he use in his temptation? It's, well, you could be better. You could be more. God's holding you back. God's holding out on you. You could be, you could be a God could be like a God. And so it's that pride that then leads into so many other things. And, and even as we look in the various scriptures, pride is, uh, is devastating ramifications. And so, and we see it here in Daniel as well. And when we were talking about King Darius, who is now ruling over this area of Babylon uh, for the Medes and the Persians. So what, you know, when those satraps and the other administrators came to the king Darius and says let's do this thing right let's make everybody pray only to you for 30 days we talked about the fact that they were appealing to his pride his arrogance and that was just something that kind of you know as I was thinking about it this week and then again even in our family discussions pride makes us so susceptible I think sometimes, at least for me, I'll just be person, you know, personally transparent here. I think when I consider pride, I usually go the direction of, 
like Nebuchadnezzar, like his grandson Belshazzar, who says, I'm better than everybody else. I mean, that's kind of the, the direction my mind kind of goes, or I deserve, or those kinds of prideful things. I don't usually go to the side of the equation that says, but pride makes you susceptible, right? That's almost like an oxymoron. I mean, does that make sense when I'm trying to, wouldn't think that pride makes me susceptible because pride means I'm puffed up. I'm bigger, stronger, better. Uh, and so makes me susceptible. So do you have any thoughts? I mean, I've got, I was considering it a few different ways this week, but I was just wondering in that line of thinking that how does pride make us susceptible? Kind of makes us almost. Well, I think pride also comes from, I don't deserve these things. What, how do you mean, Dylan? Which things? Well, things that happen to us that we don't like. I deserve better than this. Okay. I don't deserve these things. So, yeah, when those but, hardships come into our life. Yeah, but when you look through the gospel, when you look through the scriptures, what do we deserve? Absolutely nothing. Actually, our confession at 8.30 says we deserve present and eternal punishment. We don't deserve anything. No, no, Dylan, I think you're on to something really important there because, again, we either, again, we can go on this spectrum right. any direction of I deserve really great things yeah. or when the hardships do happen or the bad things happen. This isn't fair. I don't deserve I, these things. Yeah, yeah. Important. But when, what is it, Micah? Seek justice. Oh, yeah, Micah 6.8. Walk humbly with your God. Mm -hmm. Saying, I don't deserve these things. That's not really being humble. No, and Dylan, you bring up the idea for us. It's so important, right? Because... I think we would agree that pride is antonymous, whatever the word is. I mean, it's the opposite. It's the, the antonym. <laughs> Let's try it. Anyway, um, of humility. Right. And, and so humility, actually, then, if pride makes us susceptible or pride focuses our attention on ourselves, humility is going to focus our attention off ourselves, right, somewhere else. And, and it won't be about me Any? it's almost like the achilles heel or the pride is it, yeah that because we think the more the stronger we are the better we are the bigger we are the, you know the whatever putting ourselves in those positions and in terms of susceptibility it's that little you know sometimes it comes from behind or it's uh, how did that get here <clears throat> or the weak spot, or you know, like so. Sometimes we get taken by where's, where's surprise. Where's the weakness in his? Where can we yeah. get him with the arrow? And yeah. So it is a weak. I mean, it's a, a weak entry point right, into our lives, and it will always open the door for whatever else might come in. Yeah. You know, if I and I'm not trying. It's just it's so relevant. It's so in my mind, right? So when when the individual when Max got in the truck this morning. Um, one of the first things he says to me is, I, how does he say it? This never happens to me. I'm a good driver. <laughs> you know? And, and then he says, but I guess if you're going to be out on the roads at 2 o'clock in the morning, it might happen. <laughs> you know? But anyway, but his first thought was, and it was kind of a defensive thing. You know, he didn't want me to think a certain way of him. And so he says, really, I'm a good driver. And this never happens to me kind of what you were saying, Dylan, mm -hmm. but it makes us, it's, it kind of exposes our weakness. Pride, exp we try and cover up the weakness, but pride exposes it. Jess? 
But I also think that pride is so fixed off of what other people think of you and stuff, of how you look in other people's eyes. And, you know, you can only achieve so much before people give up on what the, their expectations of you being are. Because if you become very prideful and boastful, then people tend to turn away from you. So I think that that... It's a catch-22 kind of. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's a no-win situation, whether what rock in a hard place. I mean, it's if I'm going to rely on other people's evaluation of me, means on the one hand I've got to work really hard and be focused on what you think of me. On the other hand, I will, I will fail. Either the expectation will be too great or it won't be consistent. I'll just fail. And and truthfully, when we say, well, what are God's expectations of us? What does God think of us? The answer would be, all fall short of the glory of God. I feel all the time. Yeah, and we are condemned. But God thinks so highly of us that he sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem us. So what he thinks of us, his love for us, is not based on performance. But that pride is going to make us susceptible to thinking everybody with everybody else it's based on my performance. And I think what you're saying, Jess, it usually is usually is, so there's a reinforcing nature to pride. What else does it make us susceptible to then? Anything else come to I, mind? I think the pride and wisdom are on kind of a scale as your pride raises your wisdom lower. <laughs> <laughs> you look back at people, you know, instead of sitting right here, you know, it starts going the other way and the worse it gets the I love that. So, so Brett's like, you lose some wisdom, you know. <laughs> and Mary's like, you just get dumb. <laughs> no, we've right, right. I think Brett, what, and I had it jot down here. I mean, we start when pride is really the captivating thing in our lives. As that increases, right? wisdom lessons or we become more dumb, um, we start making decisions that we regret. And we start piling up regrettable decisions. And the irony is we make some of those decisions and what typically happens to defend ourselves, our pride even goes up. And we swell up with ego and, our, and because we're going to defend ourselves, even though in the back of our mind we know it was dumb. We, this isn't what, sometimes it's, this isn't what I want to be doing but I can't stop myself. And so the pride keeps going up to defend ourselves and we start making even more reg regrettable decisions. Is that kind of what you were hinting at yeah. there, Brent? Yeah. Well, it's prevalent today. I mean, you have all the Instagram and the face. I mean, people look to see how much Facebook likes they got or right. how many people share and everything. And um, I mean, chemically it changes. Well, the hormones are crazy. Yeah. It's crazy what the science shows for it. And I mean, we're just inundated with that. Like, look at me, see what I can do, look at, you know, it's not. And we still, like, I think what you bring up for us is this pendulum swing you've been talking about, or the equilibrium that you brought up for us, Brett. Because on one end, we'll look at everybody else's and think, my life is horrible. Mm -hmm. And their life is so good. And we've seen, I mean, so much literature about how it, it just increases depression exponentially. On the other end, we're trying to spend all this time to point out how great our life is or our kids are or grandkids or whatever the nice trip we took. And, and so it's just this awful pendulum swing 
And it's interesting how it got to that point because originally it was, you know, posted between family and stuff, here's what's going on in my life, to in such a short, short time you see it come to this. Well, and I think that's the pride of humanity. I mean, it's just the, the pride of life is what it's referred to in the scripture. And the people who don't even know we're consumed with what they think of us. They're like, we don't even know them. <laughs> no, but then... <laughs> Why do I care? Yeah, but you bring up an important point then, Teresa, and I think it's evident here with King Darius, is then it opens us up to manipulation as well. Because really, we're being manipulated to behave a certain way, to think a certain way. We're being manipulated. And Darius was manipulated by the administrators and the satraps who came to him and said, you know, O king, live forever, and we think you're awesome, and so you should make this law that says everybody else should think you're awesome and only pray to you for 30 days. And, and so, again, it's really, I mean, again, ironically, isn't it? Because in our head we're thinking, oh, when I'm proud, I'm strong, I'm, but it makes us so weak because we're comparing ourselves. It, uh, and there is no win in comparison. It's not my phrase. I got it from somebody else. But <laughs> there's no win in comparison. But boy, it sure is, I think, linked to the pride effect. So it makes us susceptible to manipulation, bad decisions, just foolishness. I mean, we're looking at this with Darius. This is just foolishness. And if they had asked, you know, if the king had asked Daniel about it before he put it in the law, I think Daniel would have said, king, and not even for himself. I mean, I think he would have said, king, I think that's foolish. But then you wouldn't have this lesson. Then we wouldn't have this lesson. <laughs> so. well, with Brett's example, um, thinking of it as a scale, the more pride we add on, we think that it will like rebalance it. Yeah. But it's the the wisdom going down that <laughs> you know it it doesn't. It keeps making it more out of balance. You have to be humbled back down. There's no. You know, Unfortunately, no Jess, I think yeah. I think that's true. Humility seems to balance the scales. Yeah, but well, it usually happens to us. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just like King Nebuchadnezzar. I know, stay his name right yes. <laughs> I, used, I used to say King Neb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, God put him down to act as an animal. A, a beast, an animal. I mean, you cannot get much more humble than that to come back. And right. I mean, other than a serpent, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> and he does that, too, at some point. Yeah. So... No, you no. can't. And so, and I think if you're thinking of the serpent with the Israelites or a different serpent? Well, I think even with, even with the devil. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even if we look at the Israelite as a nation, I mean, why are they in Babylon to begin with? Because they don't. Because of their pride. And their pride led to their rejection and their disobedience. And you, pride, so if uh, pride and wisdom can't live together, Right. Pride and humility can't live together. Pride and love cannot live together. I mean, that's pride is, the only thing pride can room with, so to speak, right, is fear. Greed. And greed. Those kinds of things. The, the seven deadly sins that are spoken of. I mean, those are what live with pride. And the only things that can. So you can't have love with pride. You can't have mercy or grace. You can't have peace. You can't. Those don't live together. Spirit. Absolutely. And we know that God is not going to give the gifts of the Spirit to the proud person. And so, Jess, I think your words of that we are humbled, you know, it's something that is done to us, something that's done for us. 
can't do it ourselves. Right? But it does lead me to this next point then. So, I mean, is there no defense against pride? Is there, are we kind of helpless to it until God steps in and says, okay, I'll humble you again? I mean, what kind of a, it seems like a roller coaster ride to me and not a fun one. I mean, so my pride escalates and God humbles me. And my pride escalates and God humbles me. Is there, is there any, Jess, you're shaking your head no. No, because, I mean, that's why you have the gospel. That's why you have the ability to become disciplined and stuff. So you can work to stay away from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it says do not live in the flesh and learn to discipline yourself into his word. Yeah. The more time you spend with God, the less pride takes over. I mean, it still, I mean, it still has problems, and you'll still have it. I mean, I don't think anybody's perfect when it comes to it. So everybody likes to have their roller coaster isn't quite as. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like the it's more like the little kids roller coaster (laughs) instead of instead of the fire dragon that goes upside right. No, it goes goes back to wearing your armor. It does. Ironically, right? I mean, what is Paul saying? We need that armor against. We need it because we're being attacked by the rulers in the dark places. And what does Satan want to do most? He wants us to elevate our pride. So the only thing that's going to extinguish those arrows is the armor and the, specifically the shield of faith because that also cannot live with pride. Faith and pride cannot live together. Well, in Daniel's example, of anybody in the kingdom, he had tons of opportunities to be proud. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, the right-hand man. He was in his, the wise men who were sought out second I mean they brought him in later but still and he his first response to any of those is to go pray mm-hmm. and to seek wisdom right which again now is our as you brought up for us Jess that those that's a way of living we refer to them often as spiritual disciplines but it becomes a way of living and that's what Daniel that's again what is exposed because of this situation these circumstances that Daniel was protected so either we are think as you point out either we are humbled as our pride escalates we're humbled or we're protected from pride and it's through the spiritual disciplines of praying I mean that's what Daniel three times a day I'm convinced that that protected him from pride spiritual discipline spending time in God's word having him reveal to us who we are and what he's done for us and who he is. Because again, once we see who he is, it's kind of hard for us to want to elevate ourselves. And to take, you know, receive counsel. Because again, you know, the scriptures are replete with the idea of don't isolate yourself, but instead seek counsel and be open to counsel from others. One of the struggles, I think, for us as we age, not only getting hurt or you know, bending over to pick up a piece of paper and then we have a throw our back out. But um, one of the things that we're also susceptible to is actually being less open to counsel because we think we know. Been around the block a time or two. Got some experience under my belt. You know, and I've, I've visited with folks that have been around the block a lot of times and they still trip over the same crack every time. <laughs> you know? they, and it's not that they have right grown in wisdom because they haven't been willing or humble to receive wisdom. And I'm just speaking again from my own self and conversations I've been having with people recently 
that it seems like we are susceptible to susceptibility. So what protects us from that? Praying in God's word, in the fellowship with others. Because when we isolate, we think we're right. When we isolate, we think we know more. When we, I, does that make sense? And we have nobody to disagree with us. Right. You know, I, we, we, started the, we started our Middle Earth early. Usually we wait till January. But we started Middle Earth early this year, and we watched the first Hobbit uh, this last week over Thanksgiving. And there's one scene when Gandalf is with the dwarves, and we laugh about it. I mean, it's a funny moment. He's with the dwarves, and he's frustrated, and he says, I'm leaving. You know, you guys won't accept, because he's trying to have a conversation, offer some counsel to Thorn, and Thorn won't listen. Because he knows better. And then Gandalf says, fine, I'm leaving. He goes and leaves. And they say, well, where are you going? And he says, going off to find some wise counselors. Going to, to have a conversation with someone some, who's wise. Yeah, someone who's wise. And, and, and I think as Bilbo says, well, who's that? Myself. Because <laughs> there's nobody here with any wisdom to have a conversation. And it's kind of an ironic thing. I mean, on the one hand, he's saying, Thorne, you are completely, in your arrogance, in your pride, you are unwilling to receive any counsel even from the wizard. And then the wizard says, okay, if nobody's going to listen to me, I'll have a conversation with myself. At least it'll be a... a Sometimes what? it's the only intelligent yeah. conversation <laughs> you can find. I right. um, think that we use that word. Maybe so, yeah. Conversation. But again, it, it's still that, even that. Hope makes us susceptible. Because once we isolate and think, well, I'm the only one who knows. So it's a, boy, pride... What, it reminds me of what God says to Cain after he killed his brother Abel. He says sin, and I think he's referring here mostly to pride. And he says sin is crouching at the door and seeking you, right? And that's what Peter says in his letter, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, de whom he may devour. So you, again, you have these pretty graphic pictures, um, but pride is what's going to make us susceptible to Satan. And I think what God is saying to Cain is pride is crouching at the door and it will overtake you if you give it a chance. And so, prayer in God's word, counsel and the fellowship. So, those are just a few things that I thought um, would be interesting. And, and actually now, when the king makes his law, right, he says, okay, he puts it in the, uh, writes it, seals it, and that's what they all come to him with and say, you did this, king. And so now King Darius is bound by the law. Right? It's his own law, but now he's bound by the law. He tries, as you recall, we read it, he does everything he can to try and rescue Daniel from this uh, doom. But can't do it because he is bound by the law. The only thing that sets us free from the law, in fact, he was powerless now. I mean, the king is powerless against the law. And so are we. We are powerless against the law. And then we see that God is not bound by the law, but what is he bound by? His help, himself, his own character. And so he is bound by love. He is bound by faithfulness. He is bound by who he is. And so he is powerful enough to save. And he is faithful. And he keeps his promises. See, King Darius is a perfect example of somebody who's both powerless and therefore unable to keep any promises. 
I mean, maybe he said to Daniel, I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of here. But he was powerless and therefore unfaithful. But God, who is bound by his own character, is both powerful and faithful and keeps his promises. And, uh, and so while God does not renege, right, he never reneges on his promises, he does provide a savior. And so that's what I think is so apparent in these stories from Daniel, is that God doesn't change the circumstances. Daniel still ended up in the lion's den. He didn't just pluck him out of that, but he says, I'm with you, and I will keep my promises to you, and I will provide salvation for you. And that's what he says to each one of us. Because he is powerful enough to save, he is faithful to keep his promise to save. Um, now, before we move on to 7 then, before we move on to chapter 7, who were the accusers in this story? It was the administrators and the satraps, right? They quickly came to the king and said, we know somebody who's breaking the law. And they accused Daniel. Who accuses you? Satan. Satan does, right? That's his name. That's what Satan means, is he's the accuser. So he accuses you. And the scriptures tell us that he accuses you to who? To God. Continually accusing us to God, the Father. And it's the Son, it's Jesus Christ, who says, but I have already taken all their sin upon me and given them, clothed them, robed them in my righteousness. So, again, now Satan can accuse all he wants to God the Father, but Jesus Christ has taken care of that. Who else does the accuser, who else uh, ear does he bend? Our own. Our own. He's whispering in your ear all the time accusing you and making it hard for us to believe that we're forgiven. Making it hard for us to live as forgiven people. Making it hard for us to live in that peace and quietness. Making it hard for us, right? Making it hard for us to offer anybody else forgiveness when we don't really feel like we've been forgiven by God. And so he, he whispers in your ear, he can't do anything about what Christ did on the cross for you. I hope that's, I mean, let that sink in for a second. Satan cannot do a single thing about what Christ has done for you on the cross. Satan could not do a single thing in the lion's den to, to all of a sudden make the lions overpower or anything. He couldn't do a thing. Just like you can't do a thing with regards to your salvation and what Christ did. But he can whisper in your ear. And he can get you to doubt. And how do we cover up doubt? Well, that's, that's how we resolve it. How do we cover it up? How do we? Pride. You see how vicious this is? It's just incredible. So Satan will come at it from a couple of different ways. The only reality is it's more than just this little circle of us and Satan. There's people that have been influenced by him around us. 
where it comes from other areas too. Yeah. So that's and Brett, that was the next question. Who else? So he's he's talking to God about it, but God's not listening. But then he comes at you, right, personally, and then he comes at those around you. Because we tend to believe our own voice the most, and then if it's affirmed by others around us, that's a pretty powerful tandem. And Satan will go with two out of three. For him, that's a, that's a winning margin. And, and sometimes it's by people we almost have no relation with, but they'll say things. Sometimes it's people who are closest to us, and then it's super powerful. Sometimes it feels like it's deserved, because we have hurt those around us. And even when they forgive us, there's still those moments where Satan might, you know, not I'm not saying he takes control of them or their words, but it's, boy, sometimes those things can be spoken. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I thought you forgave me. Did you not really forgive me? Why did you bring this up again? Why don't you trust me? Why is this still affecting us? Those kinds of things. And it's, I mean, those are tools of the devil. But you see how crafty he is if he can accuse us in our own, with our own tongues, our own head, or with people around us. And then we go back to saying, not only do I not deserve what Christ did for me, but I can't receive it either. The first one's right. I don't deserve it. But I can't receive it. Yeah. Mary, that is sad. It's devastating. And that's why it's so critical who we surround ourselves with, too, because even if it's not them coming to us with what Satan has whispered, it's us going to them and, and seeking their advice or their input or whatever. And if we're not in the word and if we're not surrounding ourselves with people that we can trust and speak that truth. they are also in the word and speaking truth then we it's, it adds to the spiral yeah for sure to the circle. for sure um so can i have a few of you uh look up i have three scriptures we'd like to look up this morning the first one will be matthew five carol thank you First Peter four. Thanks, Dylan. And then Romans eight. Thanks, Teresa. So Carol Matthew five verses eleven and twelve, whenever you're ready. Okay. Yeah. And the question we're looking for here is so we've already talked about the way we deal with pride is the spiritual disciplines of praying and in God's word, listening to his voice and his word, and then also listening to his counsel through others. Now we're looking to say, okay, how can we, how can we deal with those accusations? So, Carol. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say, hi, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so what's the word Jesus is giving to us there? That's obviously in the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes. I mean, the juxtaposition is powerful. All the Beatitudes, and then it's, and you will be persecuted. Right? Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. So how are we dealing with the accusations there? It's Jesus' counsel. A couple of thoughts, I think. 
Carol, could you read verse 12 again? Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay. So there's two things, I think. The first one is the first word. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice because we have a promise. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, you've got a promise. So rejoice in that. Rejoice in knowing the love and faithfulness of God himself. And then the second one. Yeah. And then I guess we actually go three. What does he say? He says, you're not alone. This is, this, even the prophets before you were also accused and persecuted falsely. Jesus Christ himself, I, he's speaking here on the Sermon on the Mount, and he knows he's going to be falsely accused. Uh, so he says, I think these three things, rejoice, know that there's a reward, and you're not alone. That ties in the second to First Peter 5, Well, that's 9. And ten. Okay, hear that one, and then I'll give you the other one that I'd like you to read. <laughs> Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yeah, very similar promises, right? Mm -hmm. We're not alone, and it's Christ who's establishing us in our faith. Um, but you also had First Peter 4, right? Yes. Okay, First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Behold, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Yeah. So there's the rejoice factor again. Isn't that something? Yeah, rejoice and be glad. I mean, so, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, it's, it's not where you would go first to think, how am I going to deal with accusations? And yet that's the counsel God gives us, is the first thing we do is rejoice when we, receive, you know, when we face accusations. And then in this one also, in these words, as you pointed out already, Dylan, for us earlier, it's we are united with Christ. This is a uniting aspect when we also suffer. It's also an extremely difficult thing for Peter, Peter is asking you to do, to oh, rejoice. Yeah, it can only be done in faith. Right. That's it. So now... And it has nothing to do with being happy. No, absolutely not. No. But there's joy, and there's peace, and there's patience. But so we have a completely different cycle now. That first cycle we were talking about, the pride, kind of a... It's just a pride cycle that results in grief and devastation. And, but now we're identifying this rejoice and be glad and believe cycle. Completely different. And this one brings us in unity with Christ and with others. And this one devastates and isolates. Yeah. And then the last one was Romans 8, 31 through 37. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 37? Yes. Okay. So what, what phrases there speak to you? All of it. All of it? <laughs> one who can be against you yeah it's a rhetorical question right there's no one paul's comment is no one if god is for you no one i mean and i guess the answer truly is maybe a lot of people but none of them none of them matter none of them can touch you because god's more powerful than all of them and he's powerful and he's faithful so he keeps his promises he doesn't ignore the fact that there will be I mean, that's the whole point. You will face accusations. There will be trials. There w- but we have something greater. We're more than conquerors. And so we don't, we don't have to succumb to that or fight it in our own strength. And again, that's, I think, the word for us is in faith we turn to Christ again and again and again. And we need to be reminded of these things again and again and again. Reading it once is not enough being reminded again and again. Dylan, were you going to look like you were going to say something? That goes back to commandments that God gave to Moses. Write these things down so that you tell your children yep. and repeat them. Repeat them. When you're waking and you're sitting and you're eating and standing and going, coming and going. Kind of every day, all day. Continually remind so that further generations remember and are reminded of all these things. Yeah because we very easily forget. Too true, Dylan, too true. So those are some thoughts I just felt like it was important. Dave, were you going to say something? Jess, were you going to add? Okay. Important for us before we left chapter 6, um, just because it seems so relevant in, in my own life and in conversation from last week. I want to remind us of some theme verses for Daniel before we look into Daniel 7 because this is a huge transition between Daniel 6 and Daniel 7. Daniel up through 1 through 6 of Daniel has been primarily historical. There's a little bit of um, prophecy, there's a little bit of foretelling, but mostly historical. And, uh, and now as we move into Daniel 7, it's primarily apocalyptic in nature. And we already talked about the fact that Daniel kind of touches on all of them history and poetry and apocalyptic, you know, prophetical, as, and so um, we want to make that switch. So again, in chapter 4, verse 32, it is, um, you will be driven away, this is when King Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast, he says, you'll be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals, you will eat grass like cattle, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So it's again that all-powerful God who keeps his promises. And then again, it's echoed in 5, verse 23. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. This is about Belshazzar. You had the goblets brought from his temple, uh, from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, 
but you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. And so these are the theme verses of Daniel, and that's what we've even been focusing on again today. And so God reigns supreme. (coughs) And what we see happening here in Daniel is what he's been doing, what God has been doing since the garden, is he's preparing the world for the Savior. And I think that's, he's preparing the world for the coming of the Savior. How appropriate that this is on Advent, first Sunday of Advent. <coughs> what God is doing. He's preparing the world. And so I'll just give you the quick rundown of how what we're going to be looking at next week. As we look back to the reign of Belshazzar, a flashback, there is some similarities. So Daniel 7 is going to talk now about four beasts. I'm just going to kind of whet your appetite here for a minute. Chapter 7, he talks about the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the terrible beast. And these are in conjunction with or in correlation to the statue from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where you had the gold head and then on down through the statue until the mountain, the boulder, comes and knocks it down and grows a mountain. But So we have in chapter 7 the lion, and that's the head of gold in the statue. We have the bear in 7, that's the chest of silver. We have the leopard in chapter 7, and that's the belly of bronze in the statue. And we have the terrible beast, and that's the leg of <coughs> iron in the statue. And so Daniel's going to interpret all this for us, and he's going to say that Babylon is the lion, the head of the statue. And the Medo-Persian Empire, which is what Daniel's living in currently in chapter 6, is the bear, and that's the, chapter set, uh, the, the chest of silver. They came and took over Babylon. The next kingdom to come will be the Greek kingdom. And they're the leopard and the belly of bronze. But then the fourth one is Rome. And they are the terrible beast. Not even given a name. It's just the terrible beast with teeth like iron, gnawing and tearing. And that's how Daniel describes it. And which part of the statue comes? Legs of iron. Sorry, I didn't say it. Terrible beast legs of iron. (coughs) That's just kind of a precursor of what we'll be looking at in Daniel 7. In the um, Concordia Study Bible, there's a real good diagram of the statue. Perfect. I will make photocopies and bring them with you. Thank you, Carol. (laughs) Carol's going to make photocopies for us next week of the statue. Perfect. Thank you. Father in heaven, thank you for our discussion here this morning, and we are grateful that your Holy Spirit guides us in that discussion, reveals to us the devastation and pitfalls associated with pride, but reminds us and turns us to Christ and that in faith we receive all your goodness and all of Christ's righteousness. And so that by faith, none of the accuser's arrows can reach us. Help us to live by faith in the one who loves us and gave his life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everyone. Make sure to save the dates for the following Wednesdays, Wednesday the 4th, the 11th, and the 18th of December. We have special Advent events happening each Wednesday throughout the Advent season. The first Wednesday, uh, we will have an Advent family night featuring the GLHS drama and hold an evening prayer. The second Wednesday, we will have 
the Grace Children's Choir singing a few songs for us as well as holding evening prayer and decorating cookies and pictures with Santa. And then the last one will be Christmas in Denmark with history and traditions of Denmark uh, as the highlight as well as a dessert reception.